0: A line will take us hours, maybe. Yet if it doesn't seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been naught.
1: Hello, dear listener. I thought we might begin with some yates read there by our guest this week, Shane de Blackham. Welcome to Superurbanism, the podcast that dances about architecture. My name is Tim Abrahams. The word legend is bandied about all too easily. Shane de Blackham though is a legend. Not just as the inspiration and educator of a generation of Irish architects now, in their maturity, O'Donnell and Toomey, Neil McLaughlin and others, but more importantly to him, as an architect, who built really good, sometimes great buildings. My favourite work of his is the Munster Technological University in Cork. It took over a decade of designing and building in five phases but he and his late colleague John Marr created one of the masterpieces of contemporary Irish architecture. Their work at Trinity College Dublin is influential, but for me it's cork, one of the great architectural legacies of the Celtic tiger. Shane was in London to receive the 2023 Royal Academy Architecture Prize, in acknowledgement of, quote, his commitment to creating communal spaces. The committee also highlighted his remarkable craftsmanship and the pleasure he takes in joinery and detail. Shane began his career in Ireland, but internationalised quickly, attending Team 10 meetings as a student in Europe before heading out to the USA to work with Louis Kahn for a while. Incredible lineage. Shane is mercurial in conversation, a lover of poetry but sceptical of the written word's power to capture architecture, concerned that he might be misconstrued but elegant in his phrasing. He begins with some oblique criticisms of what I believe is called the discourse around architecture currently, particularly in British architecture schools.
0: A line will take us hours, maybe, yet if it doesn't seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. I thought a line meant a drawing. It's saying something about architects talking about their own work and also have to be careful but the question of criticism and publication and promotion and all that and I mean I was making a point that the building doesn't need any of that the building stands alone and but also it simply very simply that when you recognize a building when you see it immediately it's it speaks it tells you and it's clear a moment's thought is just a beautiful thing, a moment's thought, that's all, and that's what Yeats was saying, he said that stitching and unstitching, design, criticism, structure, engineering, and all that, but a moment's thought is the building. That's what, I mean, I just it's it's a way of saying it. I mean,
1: the, you're speaking to somebody whose job is to write about buildings. <laughs> I know that. Yeah, yeah. So, and, uh, so what role? It, it, that,
0: that's hard. to
1: What role does criticism have then in, 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 in that case? Neil
0: McLaughlin there was talking about. He's teaching in the Bartlett, and he's uh, he has ten students in the Bartlett, and there, are, there are, it's almost as though that architecture education has been taken over by allied trades and professions, it always seems to me a huge tragedy that the Architectural Association is now where it is in terms of, I think, obscurity. It's a huge loss of English architecture and I've said what I've said about the AA.
1: To be specific and to take it back to the, the quoted line from Yeats, what you're saying is what architecture education is being g- given over to. Is a discussion
0: a, a allied and interests and not, um, and not really architects who whose ambition is to build buildings. Mm-hmm. And and I was saying I don't know whether you know what went on in Dublin, but this history, it's really important history in the 1970s. What actually happened was, the professor was fired on the recommendation of the RIBA and the university. particularly a doctor who was president who understood the needs of the professions and was able to recognize what was at error in the school when the RIBA pointed it out to him and he put the energy of the university behind a new school of architecture and he brought in an outside director who brought in big beasts from practice all over here from Glasgow London and America and Ireland so that the school was led by professional t- architects who were high achievers in their own practice. And then coupled with that at that time what was going on in London was a lot. Of, a number of those people who were teaching in Dublin also had appointments in the Royal College. And the Royal College had this um, special entry for graduates of the art schools. Just to,
1: to return, uh, we're talking about a very specific a historical moment which helped produce a generation of architects which are known far outside Ireland and you're putting that down to the way in which one particular course was changed. The whole
0: School of Architecture and UCD changed and it was allied to what was going on in London. I think things have got worse here now in that the number of the, all the allied disciplines that have converged on architecture, and which I'm calling stitching and unstitching, or, um, it's not up to me to predict what's going to happen in, in Irish and English architecture. Something good will happen. I was opening a door trying to say, yes, go in there. Let the painters talk to the architects and let the architects take an interest in what the painters and sculptors are doing. That's all.
1: Shane's criticism of British architectural education and Irish architecture education, for that matter, is pretty clear. point he made in his lecture, given as part of the prize-winning, which is two days before we recorded this interview, is that making, as a painter or a sculptor might, is an antidote to the problems. His own career was determined by a sudden switch from teaching to practice. You asked me very
0: specifically that question and I wrote an answer to it. I'll tell you, I scribbled a note. There is a very clear answer. Yeah. I was emotionally conflicted. I was disturbed. I was afraid of being out of the office because I wasn't seeing what was going on in the office. And that is as simple as that because that's the kind of architect I am. I don't delegate everything. I supervise all my own work and supervise most of the drawings, but I'm very dependent on very good assistants who will follow through and make the drawings. And I wanted to give credit to all those architects, many of whom have their own practices. now. My wife says to me, architecture is not like poetry. And this is an issue in Ireland about authorship, It's an issue in relation to this institution that we have in Ireland called Aisthana, which is the honour system of the state for people who have achievements in the arts. And they're very strict about authorship and about the creative initiative of the individual artist. And it's more complex for the architect who is probably in a partnership where the authorship is shared And there's a question then about the honour that's given. And for a long time, actually, the RIBA wouldn't give an honour to a partnership. Um, I remember, um, I was a very young architect when I was teaching. The RIBA gave the gold medal to Michael Scott. Michael hadn't done a day's work in the office for 20 years. And (laughs) two partners... Ronnie talent and Robin Walker were going out the door and came to London and said that they wanted the honour to go to the practice and the RIBA said no. <laughs> 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 and
1: your work has an incredible lineage and I've asked the quite glib question, what was it that drew you to Louis Kahn, did you feel like it was destiny?
0: I mean, the simple answer is that I, um, I mean, that I got a place at Penn and I ended up in that studio where Louis Kahn taught a studio course and he attended every Tuesday afternoon and Friday afternoon um, to a course where there was an international intake from mostly Europeans, very few Americans and for which was a special master's degree in a wonderful school. Was
1: it Louis Kahn that attracted
0: you now? No, I got a scholarship. And I got out of Dublin. I had a way out, and <laughs> back to. I mean, I knew I wanted to go back to America, and um, I had applied to the other East Coast American universities as well. And the place I got was Penn. Of course, I knew Lou's work, and I told you about tail end of the Team Ten meetings, that those student summer meetings that we had in Europe that we attended, which were hugely important to get out of where I was coming from this backwater and difficulties with the professions and so on like that and um, out of touch. They were just just out of touch. Then um, I, I met all these European architects. I met the Smithsons and I saw Louis Kahn there in the distance. Um, they were having the senior architects, the established architects. They, were, they had friendships and invited to meet in over weekend or something like that for a conference and they showed their work to each other and, and at that time then people that Lou was friendly with was the Smithsons and Oliver and, and um and Jacob Backen and, and the Dutch seemed very switched on and um, Holland was a resource to, for an inquiring architect to see buildings that um, wouldn't otherwise have seen and meet. Architects in the studio. They set projects for us to engage in conversations about urban issues and the like.
1: So before you go out to Penn, you're going to the tail end of team ten. How do you get invited? To they sent
0: an invitation to each school in UK and in Ireland, and they said we'll offer two places. You give it, you send two students to this summer school. It was just an open invitation like that. You could just say in a word that we looked over the fence. We saw what was going on and we saw things that excited us. That was it was, this, it was clearly just fate. It was just a chance, that's all. Yeah,
1: but it's interesting that Karen's invited to the Team 10 in Europe as well.
0: His name was in the air, you know what I mean? It was just an informal kind of association that was going on, people talking to each other. All this ferment was going on in London about the rebuilding of the city and and these conversations were being held and you saw what the GLC were doing and what happened in the Golden Lane competition and all that. It was a sort of education, that's what it certainly
1: sounds like it. But in a more formal way, you were taught by Khan at Penn and then you started working for
0: for him afterwards? You have to understand, Philadelphia is a lovely, small, relatively small city with an 18th century plan and between two rivers, and the university was over one river and the centre of the city is planned on five squares and one in the middle and that plan still obtains street of streets, red brick houses, beautiful small houses, much smaller townhouses, red brick paved footpaths, stone curbs, stone steps and, and a historic city and with museums and then an overlay of a sort of French plan in the 19th century, a huge diagonal axis, going out to the art museum and then building cultural institutions on that axis. And you've seen the movie Rocky anyway, that's where they end up on the steps of the art museum in Rocky. And some of that was fi- was filmed in the library. Cannes had a studio in the School of Architecture Library and they travelled under the wonderful title of the School of Fine Art. And there was painters and sculptors and city planners and engineers and landscape architects. It was all one. And there were really big names, big professors, including people who are working in the city. Most of the senior professionals had a course of some kind that they were probably working on a book and they had I mean I'm thinking of two in particular, Ed Bacon who's Kevin Bacon's old man and uh, he was the city planner, he was the chief planner, a very elegant figure and wrote a very important book and had students studying European cities, South American landscape And a book called The Design of Cities, that's Bacon's book. And then there was an equally big and very dramatic figure called Ian McHark in landscape architecture. And he stopped the university on Friday at 12 o'clock. He would bring in somebody from government or from business or somebody to speak about the environment and particularly to speak about natural systems, ecology and the American landscape and McHarg was a Scot who had a heavy Scottish accent and played it for all it was worth in America. (laughs) (laughs) And he published a book called Design with Nature, and those still are two of their seminal books.
1: I wouldn't want to make
0: too much of... You asked me about my connection with Louis. Lou had an office then, over the river, downtown, near the central square in the middle. There were tall buildings, but there were still 19th century and early 20th century, five and six storey small-ish office buildings. And Lou had two floors of a stone building on the corner of Walnut Street and Chestnut Street, 1501 Walnut Street, and he had the top floor and the, there was about 20 or 30 in the office varied in size small office there were several of the staff were also teaching in the university from the office and and we were also doing competitions and we had this I mean one thing that i discovered very quickly in america was the cultural difference between american students and european students european students helped one another and worked on each other in a competition or whatever like that people got drafted in and without commitment you just did drawings and you... And it was an easy shift from that into the office. From Lou's office was shortage of staff, work needed done. And I was friends with some of these guys who were teaching, who were working in Lou's office and teaching at the university. And I, they said, look, we need help on the Kimball Museum. Lou's trying to get the lecture theatre finished. Will you go in and help him? So I was going in there at night and working because Lou worked all hours of the day and night. That's the kind of person he was. He worked seven days a week. 14, 15 hours a day in the office and travel and work like that. So I have some credit for the projection booth in the Kimball Museum.
1: (laughs) That's possibly one of your first experiences in a practice and understanding what an architectural practice is. What did you learn from him about architectural practice?
0: You said aesthetically and professionally, no... I had worked in London in an office in relatively similar circumstances in Chamberlain, Paul and Bond. Chamberlain, Powell and Bond had two offices. They had the Barbican office and they had an office in the King's Road there at World's End. And there was a sort of relatively similar, maybe it was the culture of architects offices at that time, but the three partners, they had the whole of the first floor. And there was a staff about forty or fifty on the floor below it. And the three lads were upstairs and they had their projects laid out on drawing boards and things in huge studios where they were projects that they were working. And the work was been done downstairs and it was been transferred upstairs through a hierarchical arrangement of project architects, assistant architects in a line down from the project architects. Going like in military format, <laughs> in the, in the it, Khan's office was a little bit like that, but it was it was on one floor. The other floor was a model making shop and an archive of the older projects in the office, and the overflow. And but the office was a rectangular room. On our floor there was windows on both sides, so that you got a desk by the window like that. And then there was a single table went down the middle of the room where your work was put up for discussion. Lou's office was up front. He had a single PA and uh, secretary. And the guys in the office were the people, the senior people in the office, were people who had built buildings. There was a black architect who had done the work in Pakistan, and he travelled all the time to Pakistan. And he ran those works in India and Pakistan were all fairly informal in terms of engagement or association with governments who didn't have huge amounts of money and weren't in our modern sense project managers and engineering firms and so on like that but there were these senior architects who were who had built buildings there was one particular guy from south america and his name was carlos valenrod and he was the most able He had old-fashioned education, that he knew his history and he knew his geometry, he knew his engineering, and he had very good training. Carlos was very important. He was also head of the School of Architecture in Penn at some time. After I graduated, I got a job in the office full-time, so I went into the office, and the Mellon Building had just come into the office, and Carlos had finished the Congress Building in Venice which was a disaster, because A, it didn't go ahead, and B, there were no fees paid. And, and then, anyway, Carlos turned his attention to the Mellon building, and he was a very able leader and person. who, could. And then below those kind of guys, of whom, say, there was, was another layer of guys, the hardcore of the guys who could do the drawings. And um, there was a level of those... Several of those were Cuban American um, cigar smoking hard men who knew how to draw and knew what Lou wanted. And then there were sort of a coterie of youngsters, us included, who were junior assistants. And uh, then I tell the story about the design of about ha- what happened, the scheme, the original scheme for Mellon, and then the sort of falling out with Mellon over the budget. And Mellon was. Pissed off with the with the New Haven because New Haven wanted the rental income off the ground floor and insisted on shops. Now Mellon wanted shops in front of his museum like a hole in the head. And, <laughs> and he didn't like the carry-on on the campus, so he said he wouldn't budge. Although he was very kind and we were sent to Virginia where he had a, a vast estate that included his own airstrip and jet and he and he brought for lunch because he said that if we were working in this building we we really had to see the paintings and the books and he had a huge arc he was an anglophone in the extreme lived like a country gentleman and his father had endowed the national gallery in washington and much of the original collection of the national gallery in washington came from andrew mellon they owned alcoa lumen mellon bank and everything in between and <laughs> he was a Cambridge graduate, Paul Mellon was a Cambridge graduate, and still, to this day, funds a lot of the, uh, the landscape in Cambridge. But uh, Andrew Mellon said he, the first thing when we came in, he came out to see us in the hall. He said we had to excuse him because we had to go to dinner. And he said, in the country, he said, we eat our dinner in the middle of the day. (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh,
1: I mean, I don't know if I'm bucking up the wrong tree about this idea of the grid, but the grid seems to be very important in that school, and the grid emerges in your work later.
0: I I mean, I'm... uh, you asked me what was the grid in Mellon in the second phase of Mellon when the first phase and then it fell to a couple of us and I was in a position where I was doing a lot of the drawings and I got taken in to do a lot of senior work which I wouldn't otherwise have gotten when Carlos left and the grid in Mellon was a 20 foot square reinforced concrete square grid I mean, because I'm reflecting on this now because I'm forced to and I wasn't really always that conscious about tried to make a case or to say what were the circumstances or the influences in my work. But if you notice, say, in Cork, which you kindly said you liked, that the main thing in Cork is the passage. There's a horizontal passage going east-west on all those buildings, and parallel passages going through them. And... I think the question of dimension and the grid is circumstantial. In relation to the Taoiseach's house, what's significant about Taoiseach's house is that John and I were full of the enthusiasm and we were up against it because everybody in London did the Taoiseach's house competition and and so the onus was, I said, we'll show them. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so we made these eight drawings of everything was done in the eight drawings. I showed four of the drawings and then I picked out the plan and I picked out John's colour renderings. And I was doing the plan and the design of the buildings and John was rendering them. And then, and there was this young architect, Kevin Kieran, who drew like an, in a 6H pencil line of every brick and thought stone or beam and column that was in my head so i and kevin then he graduated and he left us and he went to harvard and he became an assistant to Moneo. he was rafael Moneo's assistant in harvard when Moneo was in charge so i'm not rejecting it but i wouldn't have said it was everything
1: so shame put to bed my thesis about the modernist grid being more important in ireland than in scotland where i'm from where Alto's freeform plan was co-opted by modernist pioneers. It was an idea that never really got going, probably didn't really deserve to. Shane instead wanted to talk about something older and deeper and more historical. At his Royal Academy lecture, Shane had talked about a house that was very important to him, the Casino at Marino. Now that's not some location from a Scorsese film, but a small summer house located in Merino near Dublin, designed by Scottish architect, William Chambers. The name casino, I learned, doesn't refer to gambling, but tellingly is the diminutive for the Italian word casso, meaning house. So it means little house. There you go, you've learned something.
0: The building is a small country house, Lord Charlemagne. had a house in the city on Parnell Square, which is now the city museum, the art museum. And this was a sort of a, in a, sort of a place in the country at that time on a beautiful site overlooking the city and overlooking the bay. Charlemont engaged William Chambers to do his best, to do his everything that he could to put it into this small house for himself. Just underlying the whole thing, just as one word that underlies the whole thing, Palladio. You see, and what, I mean, and Chambers was Palladio, and Chambers is... 250 years behind what was going on in Italy. And (laughs) we travelled in Italy every summer. We got buses, cars, bicycles, everything. We went to all the towns in the north of Italy, from Venice to Verona to Padua. We discovered a monastery in Padua where we went to where we stayed and then we went out from there on holiday to see the villas and the public buildings in Verona and Vicenza. My concern is about the legacy of the imperial design for Ireland, which is squandered and is being squandered, and the country towns, and my intervention in Abbey Leaks is a response. However the circumstances are, we don't have the structures of ownership, and I'll tell you in a second why we don't have the structures of ownership. Much to do with independence, and um, um and the uh, war of independence and 1916 and 1922 and all of that i mean the question about who's irish and what's english and the um the republican the the, the republic and so on it's all tied up with english history james william of orange the whole lot but uh, the the Act of Union in 1800 was a disaster for Dublin because what happened was there was a House of Parliament, there was a Parliament was a House of Commons, House of Lords across the front gate of Trinity College there was in effect a sort of republic in from the 18th century but the Act of Union transferred the, the whole lot back to London there was a sort of a day made and then with that went the, the question of the system of ownership and sort of successions of rebellions and whatever like that. And all I'm trying to say, all I was trying to say about Chambers was the Palladian inheritance and the landscape, the Irish landscape, particularly on the east half of Ireland, not the natural landscape of the West, Connemara and all that, but the, the East towns everywhere, plantation towns where there was a big house and street on which there was centre feature of the whole of it was a market house. And the, per- the function of the market house was the, the land that was rented to the tenant farmers from whom the landlord had taken it off their fathers. But anyway, and they, the purpose of the market house was that from their land they brought their produce, they sold it at the market house, the money went upstairs and out to the big <laughs> but there is a legacy of of a wonderful inheritance in Dublin, an amazing city, of a wonderful plan on the river and O'Connell Street and the GPO and St George's. We were looking at it last night. The Tower in St George's is a copy of St Martin's in the field. And and so it's a sort of wonderful city and
1: So it's funny that you talk about, on one hand, you talk about this really reductive, extractive relationship between different points in a rural town, but then you talk about the wonderful
0: inheritance. Yes, absolutely. It's there, but, and particularly after COVID, the Irish towns are empty. The ground floors taken over by supermarkets, knocking streets of houses, I mean, uh, yeah, whole streets of houses to one another building, obliterating the landscape behind and the garden and the service streets behind and so on like that. And I mean I don't know other than that I think that that it's the stock and trade of any architect, and I think in England, I have to say, I admire David Chipperfield enormously and what he did in the Noise Museum, and I think that it's the stock and trade of any architect. Not the French, who freely knocked down everything that was around them, and rebuilt their cathedrals and everything. But, that's all all I'm trying to say, and I think it fell to my generation to focus on that, to say, and I'm not sure that we've won very much ground, but that maybe in time or something like that they can't obliterate the landscape, they can't obliterate these towns, which are now derelict, or unlived in terrible.
1: Just to pick that just to pull that apart, pull that out a little bit. You, you, you identified David Chipperfield and you talk about your own practice and you, you mention the noyers and you talk about the what is happening to the, the Irish town and you're suggesting that one of the roles of the architect is to reaffirm a legibility to the urban experience. Exactly.
0: exactly. That's all I'm saying. That, and then that is William Chambers' Andre Palladio. And in my house, I have an 18th-century copy of his four books that was published in 1740, which are folio and double page of all the buildings and the villas Public buildings, the churches, and I have them mounted on card, and I have these buildings in my. Head. I never show them. I showed them to Neil McLaughlin there last week. He came to lunch, and he said, "Shane, I can't believe this." He said, "I'm wonderful," and he took out his camera and he took a picture because I have some of Lou's drawings as well there. You asked me about was Lou a good draftsman? Now I'll tell you. The person to answer that is Ricky Warman. Ricky Warman is an architect and a very close friend of Lou's. And he used to come in on a Saturday and he'd say, come on, Lou, out of here. He said, I'm taking you to a football match. And Ricky Pudden published... He has a thing called TED. You know the TED talks? That's He's the proprietor of that incarnation, is Ricky Worman. And he was one of Lou's best friends. And he published a book which have recently been republished and it was originally published I'd say 20 or 30 years ago. Now to get an original copy of that is thousands. You can get it on the internet. and But it, that's a book of the Lou's travel sketches. Now if you want to see Can Lou Draw? That's the book to get. His family owned most of those drawings and Ricky Worman has a lot of them. So that's where you'd see his drawings that he made in Europe when he visited and when he was working in the American school in Rome, he had his sojourn in Italy, and, and which, which changed his head in, in terms of what he wanted to do. What Lou used to do was describe the office, and then he'd take the drawings, take my drawings, or somebody else's drawings, say I was drawing the elevation, and... I was rendering the elevation under his instruction, which was very meticulous. The pencil lines, the poché, and the cross-hatching like an etcher that he insisted on. But his method of drawing was yellow trace, big sheet of yellow trace, but down top of your drawing. And he used charcoal, which you can see is this real charcoal, which is a thick piece of timber and he drew with the charcoal. And the charcoal, of course, covered a multitude, you couldn't take what you want about what did the charcoal line mean, <laughs> and some notes that you got handed back. But so that his medium, his favorite medium of design was charcoal, which, and he, he really was interested in drawing and painting. And he, for his children, he always gave them books, drawing books and colour pencils and things like that and insisted on them going to art classes. So that was very real in his head. And also music, he was interested in music. And then, but I haven't... The drawings for the original, one or two drawings from the original gallery at Yale. For the That's the one across the street from the Mellon, which also has recently been reconstructed and restored. They have so much money in American universities. And they constructed it a bit like Sydney Opera House. Buildings need maintenance and, they <laughs> and do well from refurbishment. But I have Lou's own drawing for the plan of that. And it's very straightforward. pencil straight lines and um, there is a grid yeah there's a sort of grid on it and for the concrete frame and then and there's drawings of the pavement and the footpath and the building is a blank facade and then the drawing i have of the facade is literally like that it's just that's the facade and there's a shadow on one side just a dark shadow drawing beautiful abstract drawing i was going to say Roger Hilton, Eat Your Heart Out, in, in just a beautiful drawing. and But up in the top right-hand corner of it, written on the sheet of paper, is the floor area of each floor, and what the, what the schedule of accommodation, all on that size, written in pencil. And this is a straightforward or 2B pencil or HB pencil drawing. And with the floor area, plus at the bottom of it, the addition, plus the cost per square foot, plus the total budget, all, the whole lot, the bill of quantities. (laughs) He could play the whole game and the whole gamut of drawing. You're getting a lot out of me, more than I've ever said about, um, because, you see, the question about words and talking, that's why I said, and not everybody would know about Lou, about um, the question of him trying to talk about his work. It was excruciatingly difficult to listen to. He was fumbling about it and humming and hawing and sort of repeating them and saying the same words over and over again. And I used to get up and walk out. And this we had a lectures, not in studio, in the not when he was reviewing your work in the studio, but at some public event, public lectures that he was given. And and so it was very difficult. Lou was always saying the same thing. He was just repeating himself over and over again. He said he was always talking about rooms and about where the door was in the room. I said in. Per- where the light was in the room the only thing he was he was interested in rooms room architecture as he thought it was does these people want to use this room
1: this threw me a bit shane was just coming to the end of explaining how louis khan was primarily interested in the room and then he noticed that someone else wanted to use the room that we were recording in We'd run over our allotted time in the Royal Academy meeting space, but Shane still in conversational mood and he's such a compelling person to speak to. So many stories. So we continued our discussion wandering around the gallery and through doing so, Shane's thoughts turned to arts and artists and how architects work with artists.
0: I don't think the architect is Lorenzo de' Medici. He's not a patron. I think he works with the painter and you don't go to the gallery and say I'll have that and I'm going to hang it. At the end of the lecture there was questions about about working with painters. So I said I let fly and because I thought it might go down well in the academy, I said the most difficult, cantankerous, objectionable painter I ever worked with was Sean Scully. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I thought they put that in their pipe and smoke it about the relationship between architects and painters. My engagement with Sean's Gully is to do with a competition for the entrance to the University of Limerick, which consists of a pair of masts which were made on the Isle of Wight in a shipwrights in Amazing Thing. They're they're fifty meters high, these timber masts made by a wonderful Firm of shipbuilders in India on the Isle of Wight in cows, but in the competition for the entry of it, we drew ben nicholson 's sculpture beside the masts, and it 's a huge sheet of white stone with a circle on it like that stunningly simple, beautiful landscape against a yew hedge and So we wrote on the drawings I said, this is ben nicholson 's drawing said, you can 't have this. But if you had a stone sculpture beside the mass and a yew hedge, you could make a landscape that would make a decent entrance into the university. By the time we got the mass done, which was an odyssey in itself, the, the university then came back and said, what about the sculpture? And in my innocence, I said, you could ask somebody like Sean Scully. He's always doing blocks, square things in blocks of color. He'd, might make it, he'd, he'd make a wall for you, a stone wall in blocks. And so we set off on this long relationship with Sean to get black and white stones and to make this black and white sculpture, which is stone wall, two and a half meters thick, four meters high, one meter cubes of stone, through and through. And Sean didn't know anything about stone or about masonry or building or whatever other than that he just had such an ego that he thought he could tell everybody what to do so I said to Sean one day I said it's a bit boring I said they're all the same I said look at the stone in the quarry you said you see the stone beautiful black polished stone that we got that we had to go to China to get by anyway, me. and he said what do you think he said I should put an inset. Yeah, I said, like your paintings. The way you put a painting within a painting is that there's one painting on top of another one. I said, we could change some of the stones. Anyway, when he gave the lecture, he gave me credit for the change. But, he said, but it's like socks at Christmas. He said, Shane gave me a present. Now the stones are my stones.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The the, the most technological university in Cork is... It's the fact that... Part of what is wonderful about it is your extended relationship, with it.
0: 15 years of work, successive appointments, we got, we won competition after competition. We were originally appointed with a Cork firm of architects because when that job was up, these were in the old days before European rules of procurement and the rest of it, (laughs) there Local authority. There were councillors on the appointment board, and defensively, it was political. Dublin architects don't get work in court, and (laughs) so I was asked by a firm for architects in court. Most architects in court went to London and got English consultants. Anyway, this firm of architects in court said because we had done Trinity or whatever, and they said, geez, we'll get to Blackham and Mayer, I said, they've done Trinity College, they must be able to do university buildings. So, and there was a succession of interviews. and So, we got over the first stage of the interview, we were called back for a second interview, and. Then our partners, Boyd Barrett, said to me. He said, "No." He said, "We'll have to work all this up," and I said, "No." I said, "What you want to know about you working for university committees?" I said, "Is you never change anything?" I said, "If you, I said because if you go in the second time, their reaction is, he changed it. What did you change? Why is it? It's not what you were doing, but the fact that you changed it." So I said, "No," and I said to them that. If you ever go to Cork on the train from Dublin, the railway station, the platform on the railway station in Cork, is crescent-shaped. And so that when you get off the train, you can see people getting off the path. Anyway, so I said that we'll come in and I said, I'll tell them about the platform in Cork railway station. (laughs) And I said that the curve on their building is the same as the railway station in Cork. Anyway, so that so we built two phases of that building, and then there was a big competition then for a master plan for the further extension of it, and all the heavies in Dublin were in for this job, and Brian Murphy O'Connor, his cousin was the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, who you've probably heard of, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor. He was Brian's cousin, and so Brian had zero interest in architecture. And Brian said, what are you going to do now, Shane? And I said, I think what we'll do is, I said, we'll complete the circle. And he said, what do you mean? So then I went back and made a model of the circle. And then I went to Cork to a meeting in Boyd and I showed them the model. And he looked at it and he said, God, he said, you know what, Shane? He said, it's like the Vatican. He said, go right ahead. You know, his cousin. <laughs> the La- so we that's what we used to call it, the La <laughs> I love
1: the fact that it's, uh, it's such an ambitious building.
0: This is the point. I struggled for a long time with publishing because I tried to publish these buildings on their own and they didn't really look anything. You know, I mean, it was quite hard to make any sense of them. And so when... It was all done. I got the lads in the office to put all the buildings together and to make the drawings where the full enclosure, the full circle is shown and the buildings disappear. It's one building, it's not five buildings, it's one building and in brick and masonry and a lot of wonderful indulgence really by the clients and the government, the Department of Education who supported us and, and we got successive buildings after it. And then they used to say then, there's no point in applying for any work in Cork, I said, because he hasn't finished the circle. <laughs> 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 so it was a good trick. <laughs> just in conclusion, I just want to say, I'm slightly uneasy. I'm more than happy to talk about Lou and to tell you all I've said about him, and more if you want to. But it's my work. um, (laughs) That's all my work, you know what I mean? It's a bit like the Sean Scully story. It's like socks at Christmas. I got on with Lou. That's all I was going to say. I felt we were kindred spirits. I remember one day in the office, he was doing the house for a private client and it's a timber house and there was a discussion about what to do with their flat roof and the client had appointed his own architect to work in the office under Lou's direction so he got undivided attention there was one person responsible to get this house designed and then and Lou said to me he said what do you think Shane and I said to him you could put a lead roof on it and his eyes lit up And from that on, any question that ever arose in the answer, ask Shane. (laughs) Ladies
1: and gentlemen, Mr Shane de Blackham. Well, it was pretty much everything in there, wasn't there? The founder of TED Talks, or TED Talks, Kevin Bacon's dad, Rocky, the perfidy of Sean Scully, whose work I'll never look at the same again, Louis Kahn, Team 10, the history of Ireland, the history of its relationship with the EI Kingdom, architecture's role in that, all matched against this powerful sense of an architect's mission. Shane did make it clear that he is concerned about how teaching and practice are becoming separated, He fears for those who have come in his place, even if at one stage he stepped back from teaching because he wanted to build. There's a warning there, I think, and I think it's something that we should listen to. I loved talking to Shane, though, because whilst he's skeptical of the rhetoric around architecture, he is so brilliant at evoking and describing the making. It's a level of commitment to the practice of building which we are losing, I think. Anyway, thinking about Sean, I was reminded of another Irish poet, We began with his reading of Yeats, but I was thinking of Seamus Heaney in his poem Digging, where he reflects on the labour of his father and his father's father and his father's father's father's. And he says by way of conclusion, and as we're concluding, why not? I've no speed to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. Thank you. This has been Super Urbanism, a Machine Books production. My name is Tim Abrahams. I will talk to you again very soon.